welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Nicholas Babich, a PhD candidate in medieval English at the University of Notre Dame. He is a lay brother at the Oratory of St. Philip Neri in Washington, D.C., and he's written on Robert Hugh Benson for Church Life Journal. He joins us by phone as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Nicholas, welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Why is Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson a great book? Depending on uh, who you ask, you'll get a number of answers. Most people, I think, like to say it's prophetic, uh, which it certainly is. But uh, I, would, I would argue, first of all, that it's a very good story. It was the first piece of uh, Robert Hugh Benson's that I read, and though not my personal favorite, certainly one of his more exceptional ones. It's a captivating read, and it's an unusual read in sort of the body of contemporary literature of his and obviously a more modern literature. That's sort of his appeal, and I think his enduring strength in our own time. We're going to talk about the book, the story, its characters, why the two most recent popes have loved it so much and recommended it to people. But let's begin with how the story begins, the story of Lord of the World, published 1907. There's a prologue that gives us, let's call it a future history of the 20th century. In other words, Robert Hugh Benson, writing in 1907, writes about what happens in the 20th century. What is this prologue all about? The prologue of Lord of the World, as uh, Benson himself says, he begins, I'm perfectly aware that this is a terribly sensational book, and goes on um, to both defend its sensationalism and say, persons who do not like tiresome prologues need not read this one. So, in a sense, it's the optional polemical component of his story, and I think an important component, one that ought to be read. He sort of sets up the history of England a hundred years in the future um, from his own England, and uh, in it he uh, he does, I think, uh, prophesy quite a few actual developments over the course of the 20th and 21st centuries, but uh, more importantly for him, sort of uh, suggests to his readers what he thinks will happen to the modern world if it continues going in the direction he sees it going. Now let's jump into the story itself. We'll get to the prophetic elements of the story soon, but let's talk about the story itself. Our main character is Father Percy Franklin. He is an English priest. Tell us more about this guy. Who is Percy Franklin? So Percy Franklin is an English priest in the... uh, sort of future that's being uh, shown here in Lord of the World. Uh, he lives in an England that is radically secular. Right? Catholicism is uh, not officially recognized. It's heavily persecuted and, of course, uh, wiped out by the end of the book. Father Percy is sort of the last vestige of the old Catholicism of Europe, and in many senses sort of the, uh, the first of the last. He lives uh, basically in an underground ministry, right? His work is uh, entirely secret. It's not under the watchful eye of the government, and in fact, he uh, does his best to avoid it. He eventually, and I suppose we'll talk about this later, becomes the Pope, the very last Pope of the Catholic Church. Um, But until that point, he's uh, an active mover in the very small English Catholic Church's ministry um, for as long as the world lasts. So what happened to Catholicism and Christianity and faith in this world that Robert Hugh Benson imagines. As is partly explained in the prologue and sort of partly alluded to over the course of the novel, 
Christianity as a whole has sort of ended uh, and has been officially sort of persecuted in the Western world, uh, following several important Marxist, socialist, and uh, atheistic revolutions in Western Europe, uh, a Bolshevik revolution which uh, is very aptly prophesied by uh, Benson. Christianity is uh, more or less outlawed in the Western world, and of course, in Benson's mind, doesn't exist in the Eastern world in East Asia. The, the world that Father Percy Franklin is living in is one in which Christianity is really not on public radar. People know about it, people know it exists. The first stage in sort of the, the radical change in English government is that the Church of England is abolished. Um, and so the official religion of England is kaput, there's nothing left. Um, Catholicism persists partly because it's the true Church, and partly because it's not the official religion, uh, they can sort of go underground much more easily. And as Benson notes, Protestantism basically dies out following the dissolution of the English Church and across the world sort of the disbanding of various Protestant denominations. Now, that's not the world we know today because there are still a lot of Christians, still a lot of Catholics, still a lot of religious freedom and practicing of religion but it's a world we might know through a kind of extrapolation through the rise of secularism in the 20th century into the 21st century, isn't it? Yes, and I'm sure uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with uh, similar prophecies made in our own day. The growth of secularism, uh, both of the uh, most current Holy Fathers, Pope Emeritus Benedict, may he rest in peace, and uh, Pope Francis have both been very clear about the march of secularism against Christianity in the world. And with the rise of many modern social movements, we see sort of the systematic, if not persecution, at least the systematic distaste and uh, disavowal of Christianity. And so Benson is sort of making the same predictions that we might hear today, that secularism is on the rise, and it's a secularism that doesn't account for religion and doesn't want to account for religion. It wants to see religion pushed as far to the margins as possible and at least in the case of some, extinguished. And that's an important point. It's, it's a secularism that's not indifferent to faith or, or tolerant of faith. It's, in many cases, hostile to faith. And it differs quite a bit from sort of the modern Catholic and maybe more broader Christian understanding of uh, religious tolerance, which uh, doesn't see religions as equal, nor does it see them equal to secularism, but rather sees the role of religion as one essential for human flourishing, and then ultimately, of course, that Catholicism is the true religion and ought to be privileged not only for that reason, but simply because mankind needs the worship of God. Is it amazing that a guy in 1907 would foresee this, or were there lots of other contemporaries of Robert Hugh Benson who worried about similar things? So, Benson died in the second decade of the 20th century, so about 100 years ago, a little longer. He's not living in a time that alien from ours. And there are some things we, we ought to note that he gets wrong. Uh, one of the most notable examples to me is that the ultimate president of England, uh, Oliver Brand, um, and his wife Mabel, are married in a monogamous relationship, and one that seems, uh, to modern ears, very old-fashioned. Mabel is more or less a housewife who uh, cooks her husband's meals or at least sort of uh, plays the role of domestic partner. This is not sort of the uh, the world that we're used to. But at any rate, um, 
aside from sort of uh, exceptions like that, Benson is really living in the world that we live in now, right? Secularism was already, you know, quite ingrained in the European mindset, what with the French Revolution over 100 years before Benson, um, and with the uh, gradual growth of uh, secular political parties, both in uh, England and the United States, and of course, uh, across continental Europe, unification of Italy, for example, and the uh, erection of their secular government is only a few decades prior to uh, Benson's birth and only a few more decades prior to his own death. So he foresees this world and the rise of secularism. We should probably point out that the novel is called Prophetic for that reason, but also for other reasons. He anticipates certain technologies like weapons of mass destruction and air travel and instant communication. Uh, climate control. There's there's a kind of Jules Verne element to this book where he's anticipating what's to come just in terms of simple technology. Yeah, and I think uh, Benson Benson is often written off, even by Catholics, as sort of a religious polemicist or an apologist. Um, he's uh, you know a little stuffy, a little old fashioned, a bit of the Tory mindset, and uh, you might want to read him on a pious Sunday afternoon, but not otherwise. And I think uh, all of that is true, and uh, much of it is very attractive to me. But uh, Benson, I think, is more than that. Uh, Benson is a social visionary. Um, He was, of course, the son of the uh, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury in his day um, and a prominent political figure in England. He was of the uh, old world, as it were, part of sort of uh, England's older aristocratic class. But all the same, he was a very public man. Um, and had a very public ministry and cared a lot about what the modern world was doing. And so his vision is a very Catholic, to use sort of the lowercase c Catholic one. Um, he saw, he wanted to see, and he saw to a certain extent, how all of the different pictures of uh, modernity fit together into one big picture. Um, and so his interest in scientific development for him was sort of uh, akin to his interest in prophesying social change or the triumph or defeat of Christianity in the modern world. Let's go deeper now into the story of Lord of the World. We've met Father Percy Franklin, this persecuted Catholic priest in England. You mentioned Oliver and Mabel Brand, this married couple. Oliver is a member of Parliament. Mabel is his loving wife. Uh, Who are they? What role do they play in the book? So Oliver becomes... A character in his own right, perhaps more so than his wife, but in both of their cases, I think most importantly become caricatures, or to use a more positive term, they become types of secular government in this futuristic world, and to a degree in, you know, Benson's own world. They sort of represent the powers that be in the secular state and the the ultimate persecution of Christianity. Um, And so their personalities do matter, and uh, so there is some character development, but more than that, and like many of the characters in this novel of Benson's, they serve to represent a broader body in his prophecy. They represent sort of the triumph of secularism against Christian values, and in the case of Mabel, even against one's own conscience. Now explain that. What does she battle with, and what happens to her ultimately? Mabel is, of course, Oliver's wife, and uh, like I said, her role in public politics is sort of secondary to his. Uh, She's not herself a politician, um, although she's obviously kept abreast of his own political dealings, and is, in many ways, his chief advisor. And as Oliver's career goes on, and he continues to persecute Catholicism more intently, Mabel begins to have misgivings. Her sort of first 
big moment of misgiving is uh, she sees a uh, train wreck. Uh, Benson did not predict the demise of the uh, steam train, so there are uh, train wrecks in Lord of the World, and uh, she witnesses one of these uh, right in the heart of uh, urban London, and she sees uh, a number of uh, casualties, you know, people uh, dead and dying on the uh, side of the rail embankment. At the same time that the government is uh, sending employed uh, euthanasia doctors to uh, kill off anybody who might be surviving and, uh, quote-unquote, in too much pain to go on living, she also sees a Catholic priest run to the scene and give last rites to a dying Catholic. This troubles her. Uh, she's never really seen religion practiced, and it sort of shocks her, both the ritual of last rites and the belief of this individual who's uh, given his dying rights. Uh, so she brings this to her husband, and he explains Catholicism to her with sort of remarkable knowledge. Uh, he says, but it's all made up, right? It doesn't matter. And this sort of soothes her. In the next sort of moment, we see Mabel's conscience peaked. Oliver's mother is dying at home. His mother lives with them, and uh, Oliver's out of work. Mabel is watching his mother die, and uh, in the course of the night, his mother calls for a priest, which happens to be Father Percy Franklin. So Father Percy administers rites to her, and uh, shortly thereafter, she dies again calling for a priest. And the whole time, Mabel is there witnessing this, wondering how, uh, to use her husband's words, a woman could be so backward, and at the same time wondering if there's any truth in the whole matter. And so this sort of progresses until ultimately she discovers that her husband, towards the end of the novel, has commissioned the killing of Catholics all across the country who are recusant and not participating in public worship, sort of ordained by Julian Felsenberg, the Lord of the World. Um, and when she finds this out, that he's ratified this persecution of Catholics, not only tolerated, but ultimately sort of uh, agreed to the bombing of Rome, and finally the bombing of the Holy Land, she sort of breaks. Something breaks in her, and she says, all of this time, people had taught me that religion was the cause of wars. This is sort of a big uh, polemical note that Benson strikes. You know, the secular mind claims that Christianity especially, but any kind of religion, is sort of responsible for death and conflict in human history. So she takes this knowledge and she says, well, no, <laughs> here are these Christians dying as martyrs, right? Turning the other cheek, not fighting back. And in fact, the Christians who do fight back are condemned by their leaders. And she says, how could these obviously nonviolent persons, subject to so much persecution from, among others, my own husband, how could they be in the wrong? How could they be the ones who are not pacifists and are superstitious when, for their refusal to celebrate the now public secular religion, they're being killed off in droves? And so at this point, she... Uh, decides to kill herself. She checks into a euthanasia clinic. Euthanasia is legalized in this uh, modern, futuristic, dystopian England, perhaps uh, very accurately um, prophesied. And she uh, checks herself in, and she, after a waiting period mandated by the government, uh, kills herself. She puts on a mask that uh, sort of dispenses poison into her lungs, and uh, she dies there. And uh, there's a lot of debate about how exactly she dies and whether she sort of uh, has a deathbed conversion, um, a position which I'm, I'm rather fond of. Um, but at any rate, this sort of suicide, which it seems that she ultimately finds wrong, all sort of premised on the fact that she feels betrayed by the secular ideology 
that she had believed in from sort of her earliest memory. Now, you mentioned Julius Felsenberg, and we've got to talk about this guy, Senator, American Senator Julius Felsenberg. Who is he? Why is he Lord of the World? That's right. So uh, Julian Felsenberg is an interesting character. Uh, he perhaps uh, betrays some of uh, Robert Hugh Benson's more anti-American sentiments. He doesn't, uh, I don't think, at least, he has a particularly high view of American democracy. And so he sees this uh, very controversial figure coming from sort of the American political establishment. He's a renowned, um, successful senator, a beautiful public speaker, and a captivator of souls um, in a very real sense, as we'll see later on. And so he rises to power first in the United States, and then sort of rises to power within uh, the Western world, right? There's sort of uh, three huge blocks in uh, what will ultimately be the one-world government. And he starts in sort of the Euro-American one. He eventually becomes so captivating, um, partly through his institution of sort of natural religion, as he calls it, that near the end of the novel, all of the world's leaders essentially... uh, give them willingly their own power. They say, take it from us. And that's when he becomes Lord of the World. And so his story is largely a uh, rather, again, prophetic, a campaign of sort of rhetorical prowess, perhaps empty speech, but at any rate, uh, charisma, charisma, charisma. He is an incredibly lovable person and captivates the secular audiences and indeed wins over sort of many apostate Catholics who uh, decide that the true religion is not in fact true, and uh, decide to follow him under the secular banner, which hitherto they had not seen fit. Ultimately, he's sort of the instrument of the end of the world, or at least that's what it appears to be. As Lord of the World, he finally takes uh, Volors, which are uh, Robert Hugh Benson's vision of fighter jets and bombers, to uh, the Holy Land, where the last Catholics have uh, finally resided at the end of the novel. Um, These are the only ones left in the world, more or less. And He bombs the whole place, and uh, that's sort of where the novel ends, with uh, the Pope and the few few last Catholics surviving, obliterated. Um, And so Felsenberg is sort of an interesting character who becomes the embodiment of secular ideology for Benson. And for Benson, secular ideology really is the Antichrist. I wonder what he would answer if we were to ask him if the Antichrist need be one man. Certainly he's one man in the book, but the book is so allegorical, and maybe, to use a better term, so typological, so interested of individual characters, not as individuals, but as sort of representations. I wonder if he would say, well, Felsenberg is secular liberalism, secular progressivism. Uh, Felsenberg sort of is the embodiment of this vicious ideology, and uh, as Benson sees it, is ultimately sort of the... uh, Uh, cause of the end of the world. So, Nicholas, Julius Felsenberg arrives on the scene. He brings peace to the world, at least initially. Then he becomes this Antichrist-like figure. Is he the Antichrist? And just tell us, what does that mean to be the Antichrist in terms of, of theology? But what is the Antichrist the way Robert Hugh Benson thought about it? So, the origin of uh, the term Antichrist and uh, sort of the theology of Antichrist uh, is, of course, in the teachings of Jesus himself. And so we read about false prophets in the Gospels, um, and even the suggestion that there is uh, sort of a single false entity that ultimately is either sort of Satan or a representative thereof who will challenge the Church throughout its history and, uh, most importantly, at the end of time, right? 
And so we uh, see a bit of this narrative played out in Revelation. And then we see it, of course, uh, uh, theorized throughout the history of Catholic theology. And so for Benson, the Antichrist is exactly what it sounds like, the the human worldly representation or perhaps embodiment of all that is opposed to Christianity and to Christ himself. Uh, and so throughout the ages, sort of the, the idea of the Antichrist has shifted. Um, sometimes it's been understood that the Antichrist is a person. Um, both Catholics and Protestants alike over the centuries have sort of suggested that uh, a current pope, especially evil current popes, are Antichrist, and so we, we get this in the, both the early and later Middle Ages, and we'll get this, you know, throughout the uh, early modern and modern period as well. Uh, some think that there is not one Antichrist with multiple Antichrists, right? An Antichrist is anything that draws you away from Christ. Benson, in his novel at least, presents the Antichrist as a person, right? Julian Felsenberg. This is made pretty clear just from his sort of symbolic relationship to Christianity and the fact that ultimately he is the one sole uniting antagonist of Christianity and Christ's vicar on earth, the Pope. And so for Benson, Julian Felsenberg is, if not every evil thing in the world, at least the uniting malicious force that guides all of these evils against Christianity. Um, he's sort of uh, the persona non grata of uh, the Christian faith. You've already discussed briefly the way the book ends, but tell us in a little more detail, how does Lord of the World end? It's abrupt, it's shocking, I don't know, I want to call it a happy ending. Is it a bad ending? Anyway, what happens at the end? What do you make of it? The ending of Lord of the World is a shocker, to say the least. Of course, as pretty much any reader will gloss it, the world ends, right? And so the novel sort of necessarily ends at the same point. There's really no more of a story to be told, at least in worldly terms. Um, the way the end of the world is occasioned uh, sort of begins back with the rise of secularism, as Benson would have it. And so... He, uh, the claim of the novel is that from sort of modern times, i.e. Benson's modern times, right, the early 20th century, uh, secularism has advanced so much that the world begins to turn not just in part but in whole against Christianity. Of course, over the uh, duration of the novel, there are a few important events that sort of uh, presage and ultimately cause the end of the world. The first is the bombing of Rome. Right. This is after Christianity has been uh, even more strictly made illegal uh, across the world, um, and Catholics uh, primarily, but of course other Christians uh, when applicable, uh, are sort of uh, reacting and rising up against the tyranny of secular government. So you do have a few Catholic rebellions, most of which are condemned uh, by Rome uh, when they come about. So there's a uh, Catholic layman who attacks Oliver Brand at one point in the novel with a, with a handgun, uh, fails to kill him, and himself is sort of torn to pieces by an angry mob. This act, however, was uh, condemned by Rome, condemned by uh, the current Pope, John the 24th, and we see sort of moments like that as the catalysts of the beginning of the end. So the result of sort of rebellion movements like this is that finally uh, Rome is bombed. Julian Felsenberg and his cronies uh, send Volors over Italy, and they bomb the Vatican. They bomb the Vatican, and uh, all of Roman Christianity sort of disappears at that moment. Fortunately, uh, Percy Franklin is uh, not there present. He, uh, one cardinal and uh, several other important clergy in the Church, 
are sort of congregated in the Holy Land, where they hold conclaves, and uh, Percy Franklin is ultimately elected as the Pope, and he takes the name Sylvester. So at this point, Pope Sylvester uh, sort of recalls Christians to the Holy Land. He says, you know, he sort of sends out a universal message through uh, the Catholic underground, as it were, and he says, okay, come here. You know, this is the last safe place. And so it's uh, it's an interesting way for things to end, more or less, uh, the way they began. Christianity sort of recedes back into its hometown. As the novel progresses, uh, sort of all the Catholic population, small as that is, is in the Holy Land, and finally they're betrayed uh, by a certain Russian bishop uh, who sort of uh, converts to secularism, as it were, apostatizes, uh, and informs Felsenberg's government that there is still a small Christian community hiding in Jerusalem. And so Julian Felsenberg does what he did once before, and he sends volors with bombs and fire to the Holy Land, and that's finally where the novel ends. And it's a very interesting ending. Um, I've said before that this novel is typological. I think that's very important here. It's not so much that this is an allegory, right? The characters are real, and they're not just stand-ins for anything else, but they do represent a reality that's sort of greater than we can imagine. Um, and this is, you know, partly because it's a futuristic prophetic book, and partly because it's uh, so obviously modeled on biblical genre, right? These characters represent not only what the world will be like, but what the persons at the end of the world will be. Um, and so Pope Sylvester, uh, Percy Franklin, celebrates his final Mass and exposes the Holy Eucharist in the Holy Land in his little chapel for adoration. He encourages the Christians that are left in Jerusalem to flee. Uh, of course, he is not entirely sure as of yet that this is the end of the world, although shortly before the bombs are dropped, he uh, does have a vision. He has uh, a real prophecy. He's sort of a vision from God, and he says, this is the end. You know, this is, this is the last. And so at this point, uh, Eucharistic adoration is proceeding apace, sort of an unusual one with bombs flying overhead. And as they're praying and uh, incensing the altar, singing the Tantum Ergo, um, a Eucharistic hymn, the Volors drop their bombs, and the last of Christendom is wiped out. Um, and very famously, Benson ends his novel with the words, then this world passed and the glory of it. And that's all we know. That's all we know. Uh, presumably, this is uh, when the last of Christian populations is wiped out. Um, and the last few pages of the novel, sort of uh, spiritual reality and secular reality become one. And uh, the novel starts revealing to us uh, sort of angelic hosts and the cloud of glory, perhaps, that the Lord is to come back in. We're given to understand at this point that this is the end, that Christ comes in glory. We don't know how, and the wicked are condemned and the righteous are saved. This is a Catholic book, obviously. Is there a reason for non-Catholics to read it? Yeah, that's a very good question. Benson um, is an interesting character because I think he's, in many ways, a good model for modern ecumenism. He himself was an Anglican, for a good portion of his life, he wasn't ordained a Catholic priest until 1904, having taken Anglican holy orders many years prior. He had a very deep personal conversion to Catholicism over time, uh, but in the first few years of the 20th century, uh, partly because he saw his own religious body collapsing. And he began to sort of equate Christianity, uh, maybe what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity, sort of the important doctrines and tenets of the Church with Catholicism. He sort of couldn't see one without the other. Um, and so for Benson, I, I think, were we to ask him, he would say, you know, for me, it's, 
it's not a question of being Catholic or Christian. It's the same thing. Now, that's a you know, that's one view of ecumenism. Another is that, you know, all Christian denominations are equal. I certainly don't think this book suggests that. And I think in places, Benson is very hard on not only sort of uh, Protestant Christianity, but other versions of what we would call apostolic or lowercase Catholic Christianity. In his book, sort of the Eastern Christian churches are dissolved into the Western church to the extent that uh, they no longer even use their own liturgies. Uh, this is sort of an interesting fact, and uh, I think one that most readers in the Catholic Church would uh, find a little strange, given how popular and important Eastern Christianity has become in the modern history of the Church. But at any rate, I think Benson is uh, pretty hard-lined about Protestantism. He doesn't really see a future for it in the actual future, or, of course, in Lord of the World. And so I think Christians, uh, Protestant or uh, Eastern, I think would benefit from this book simply because it's a great read, simply because I think it has real truth to it, but it's a hard lesson. It's a hard teaching, and uh, they may find uh, they may find Benson uh, a bit a bit of a, uh, a polemicist against what they consider mere Christianity to be. And he, of course, I think would say this is the point. It's a challenge. Uh, it's a prophecy. It's prophetic. It's a call. It's a call to conversion. It's a call to see things differently. And as far as Benson's concerned, seeing things differently and rightly is to ultimately recognize that Catholicism is where Christianity sort of resides in its fullness. Should we think of it as a work of dystopian science fiction that would fit into the tradition of Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, who both, of course, are in the future at the time Robert Hugh Benson is writing Lord of the World? Yes, I think that's I think that's a reasonable thing to do. I think Benson would claim, as is the case with all of his writing, that ultimately this is part of his ministry, right? This is part of his call, again, to conversion and to holiness for Catholics and non-Catholics alike. I don't think that's any reason not to class it with uh, other books uh, of sort of a similar genre that don't have the same purpose. It's clear that Benson is an early science fiction. It's clear that this work engages not only with sort of contemporary genre, but fits very nicely into what otherwise is a fairly secular, generic space. There really is no Catholic Orwell except for somebody like Benson. I think the comparisons are too many to be ignored. His clear interest, not only in sort of uh, religious prophecy, but in secular prophecy, in scientific prophecy, thinking about what sort of interesting, cool developments in the future of the world there might be. I think people at times have a uh, sort of a difficult time figuring out how to place Benson because his work is so religious and because, frankly, it's polemical, right? It does serve the function that uh, his preaching did. It's, it's fairly on the nose, as it were. At any rate, I don't think this sort of invalidates its serious indebtedness both to science fiction that existed and its sort of a prophetic introduction of other science fiction genres that in often cases are sort of uh, indebted to it. Lord of the World is available in lots of editions. Is there one that you recommend? Benson is difficult. Benson is difficult. Only a few of his works are uh, published in, in modern times in sort of reputable editions. My first edition is uh, one I embarrassed to say was a uh, total ripoff. Uh, so watch out for that, listeners. I find uh, the best the best case scenario is, uh, in fact, Clooney Media. Um, Clooney Media has begun, I think maybe five years ago, they started perhaps longer ago, to uh, publish the works of Robert Hugh Benson. Um, they didn't start with Lord of the World, but Lord of the World was... Uh, 
uh, a very recent addition to their library. Uh, it is an addition in the sense that it's uh, sort of been, you know, it's been edited, it's been collated, it's been checked for errors and printed by a reputable press in a reputable shape. And I find it a very good uh, reading edition. I have several other of their publications of Benson's. My edition is from Ave Maria Press, and on the cover there is a blurb from Pope Francis, which says, I advise you to read it. Why does Pope Francis love Lord of the World? Pope Francis loves Lord of the World, I think, for several reasons. I think one is he genuinely enjoys it. Like I said at the beginning, it's a good story. I think perhaps more importantly for him is because it does what he himself has set out to do as the shepherd of the church. It's a prophetic book. It's a book that preaches, and it's a book that teaches a lot about what the world would be like if Christianity didn't have a say and weren't sort of guiding world affairs. And how about Pope Benedict? He's another fan of Lord of the World. He was a fan of Lord of the World. Why did he talk about it and encourage people to read it? Pope Benedict has a very similar vision in this case to Francis. He sees it as uh, as prophetic and as uh, pastorally necessary. It's an important read for Christians. I think in Benedict's case, especially as sort of a public intellectual in the way he was, he saw very deeply and was hurt very deeply by the growing tide of secularism in the Western world. He wrote very often about sort of the poison of secular ideology and how it, uh, it really may lead to the end of Western civilization as it is, and by extension, perhaps the, the end of the Church and the end of the world. And so I think uh, Pope Benedict, coming obviously from a different intellectual place and a different time from Benson, would have been happy to have called the book his own work himself, right? He, uh, he sees Benson's vision as one very similar to his own and shares many of the fears that Benson did in his own time. Nicholas, how did you discover Lord of the World as a reader? And we've heard the case for Pope Francis, the case from Pope Benedict for reading this book. What's your case? Why should people read it now in the 2020s? That's a great question, John. The book, uh, I came across more or less by uh, by chance, and I think that's an unfortunate thing. I think uh, Benson does not have nearly as many readers as he should, or as he did. He was very popular in the first half of the 20th century. Um, I've read Lord of the World many times for a number of reasons. I think the first and the most important for me as a student of literature is that it is a good and beautiful story. It is unlike, really unlike any other novel that's out there in the market today that's sort of roughly modern. I think that's a reason alone to read it. I think sort of rolled into its goodness is that it's prophetic and that it really does call a Christian uh, to conversion and to a, a certain renewed understanding of what the world around them is like. And uh, even if we don't agree with all of Benson's prophecy, and if even some of it has been sort of proved wrong, um, not least that airplanes do not flap their wings, uh, it's nonetheless important to expand our vision, to see one way that the world could have gone and perhaps the way that it's still going. Nicholas Babbage, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson. Thank you so much, John. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through my website at haymiller.com. On Twitter, my handle is at haymiller. And last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.